always in pursuit of each one of us with a relentless desire to see each and every one of us flourish. So grateful, God. So grateful. Let's go to the scripture in John. Just remain standing if you would, guys. Go to the scriptures on the PowerPoint. After these things, meaning the resurrection, a little bit of time after the resurrection, Jesus is appearing. Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. The disciples did, did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you, you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. Disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked. He jumped into the sea. The other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. And when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there, fish on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. Second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and you went wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He 
said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. And after this, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. You can go ahead and be seated. So we're in this in-between space of the resurrection to the ascension where Jesus heads back to heaven. And we started to talk about last week, um, we talked about doubt and we talked about uncertainty. And part of the reason we, we talked about uh, Jesus kind of remained was to, uh, like, that's a question, isn't it? Like, why doesn't Jesus just resurrect from the dead and ascend to heaven? Well, he addresses doubt uh, and addresses insecurity, something that he comes back to make sure that it's tended to. And in this conversation, uh, there's another piece that Jesus is tending to that's important And that is, this time he's revisiting this issue of shame. He's showing that he is the God of restoration, dealing with, he's not only the God of second chances, but he's the God of multiple opportunities for each and every one of us. And he visits Peter in particular in a specific way in the larger group. So before, between the resurrection and the ascension, there's the dealing with doubt, there's the dealing with uncertainty, there's the dealing, this issue of restoring those that have taken uh, a a route that was, had to be deeply uh, disappointing to them and discouraging to them. And God shows up to give, Jesus shows up to give a mulligan, so to speak. Those of you that are familiar with golfing, you know what mulligans are, perhaps. Mulligans are a bad golfer's favorite uh, stroke in golf. It's when you take a shot, and uh, it's a bad shot, you kind of get a do-over. Wouldn't it be great to get a mulligan in all sorts of parts of life, right? So I, I never could really figure out golf, still can't. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me because the ball sits still and you get to just take a lick at it. I played a lot of baseball growing up and people throwing the ball 90 miles an hour uh, at you when you're batting and you can hit it better. I seem to be able to hit it a little bit better. Uh, when the ball was coming 90 miles an hour and was curving or going in different directions, then being able to hit a ball on a tee. There's just something. So mulligans are one of my best friends. I don't golf a lot, but I love mulligans. I don't like to golf with people that don't like mulligans. Those are called stingy people. But golf should be easier in my opinion, but it's not. But wouldn't it be great if we could get mulligans in all sorts of different areas of our lives, right? Just think of the benefits. Imagine the benefits if there were mulligans, if there were do-overs, if there were a place to be able to do-over. Like, for instance, if you got pulled over by the police and the cop comes to the window and says, you know how fast you were going? to say, well, I'm going to take my mulligan today. It's like, oh, okay, mulligan. And you take a mulligan. Or banking, you know, you went and you bounced a check or you missed that loan payment. You just call in and say, hey, I'm taking a mulligan on that. They're like, okay, it's your mulligan day. Or how about those days when you're crabby or you want to argue with people, perhaps your spouse, you're in these, you're, you're really being a jerk that day. And then you could do all of that and just say, hey, I think I'm just to take a mulligan on all that. That'd probably be a good thing. You're at school, you bomb a test, take a mulligan, presentation at work, mulligan, right? Bad stock investment. You, you just think of how risky you could be if you could take mulligan in the stock market. You forget to send in your taxes, just tell the IRS it's mulligan day for me. 
It's a bad sermon. Scott will take a mulligan on that one. Bad date, mulligan, bad breath. I take a mulligan. No questions, no penalties. But sometimes our need for a mulligan, a do-over, sometimes our need to try to get another chance goes much deeper than that. And Peter is such a beautiful example of someone who represents us, quite frankly. See, Peter doesn't need a second chance. Peter needs another chance. And the truth about all of us is we're not looking for a second chance. We're looking for another chance. It's not only that we aren't perfect. We are not on our first do-over. Peter, when the boat, when he tries to walk on water, there's a miracle happening. He takes a few steps. He's sustained on the water as Jesus called him out. But then he begins to sink because he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He needed a do-over there. At one point, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, get behind me. You're acting like Satan. Would have been a great moment for a do-over. He needs the restoring power of God in that situation. Peter performs the first successful ear amputation in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus looks at him, kind of shakes his head, puts the guy's ear back on and says, you need a do-over, and he puts it all back together. But this is deeper than even that. Peter has betrayed Jesus three times, as a matter of fact, Jesus, as Jesus had said he was going to. So the first thing that Peter shows us is when you need a mulligan, when you need a do-over, you need to first of all come clean. It's interesting, the scripture, because that Peter says, I'm going to go fishing because that's just how we are. When we get disoriented and we're not really sure what the future holds and we're not really sure what tomorrow is going to look like, we go back to the old thing many times. And that's where Peter goes. I'm going to go fishing. I'm comfortable with that old way of life, the things that I did before I even met Jesus. Because when things are disorienting, that's what I want to do. I grasp for the things that in some ways seem secure, even though I walked away from that. Even if it wasn't a bad thing, it just seemed to bring some security. And we can revert back to these old familiar ways when we're disappointed or if we're full of shame or we're discouraged or depressed or we're not sure what's next. We tend to want to just go back to those places just because they seem more comfortable. And it's in this space that Jesus begins this process, this beautiful process of restoration that has to be completed in Peter's life before Jesus can ascend to heaven. I believe it with all my heart. God's got big plans for Peter's life. God's got big plans for yours. And your restoration and mine are very important. And God makes sure that he shows up. Jesus shows up to tend to Peter himself in person, the resurrected Christ, to make sure he knows there is no shame. And this account is one of the most beautiful pictures of restoration in Scripture. Jesus asked the question, children, you haven't caught anything, have you? It's a simple question, but it kind of has a sting, doesn't it? If you're a fisherman... If any of you like to fish, the last thing you want to be asked when you haven't caught anything, especially if you've been out for a long time, is you haven't caught anything, have you? It's like, well, you know, you start the excuses, the barometric pressure isn't good, it was too windy, we had a bunch of big ones. It's a question with a sting. See, Jesus is good at questions with stings, isn't he? 
He tells a couple of disciples at one point, he says, what are you talking about while you're walking? And they have to admit to him, well, we were talking about who was going to be the greatest or who is the greatest. And then he asks a woman at one point, he says, Where, she, he says, where's your husband? Because he knows she's been married five times. There's questions with a sting and God is looking for the first place is that, that we would just come clean. Here's Jesus. Any luck, guys? Catch any? And it's powerful. It's just one two-letter word that changes the, changes the whole trajectory of what's going on here. They simply say no. It's been a night of failure for us. This is all Jesus is waiting to hear. He's just waiting for honesty. And everything begins to shift. In the coming clean, the admittance, the openness of failure and disappointment, it creates an open door for God to enter into their lives in a new and fresh way. Honesty, humility, The God of the multiple chance is just looking for an honest word and an honest door open in our hearts. See, if you and I are going to receive help from God, we need to face what the reality is. And the reality for Peter here is that Peter had failed Jesus miserably. And the reality for you and I is we have failed at times. We need to come clean. The second thing that we see is that we need to, in order to, if we need a mulligan, we need to light a fire. Now, it's interesting in the scripture, you'll notice perhaps that there's some specific language that's used. It's just really, this scripture is packed with powerful pictures and restoration elements to it. See, The place of the charcoal fire. It specifically says it's a charcoal fire that Jesus is sitting at on the beach. It's a charcoal fire. Why would they say it's a charcoal? Why don't they just say Jesus is at a fire? But then if you go back to John 18, you notice that there's a charcoal fire in John 18 as well. Just a couple chapters earlier, it's before Jesus dies on the cross. It's after Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And listen to what it says. It says, Simon Peter and another disciple followed behind. And since the disciple was known to the high priest, he went to Jesus into, he went with Jesus into the courtyard, but Peter was standing outside the gate. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate and brought Peter in. And the woman said to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I'm not. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire. Hmm. Because it's cold. They're standing around it. They're warming themselves. Peter's standing there, denying Jesus next to a charcoal fire, warming himself, denying Jesus. See, it's at this place, it's intentional that Jesus lights a charcoal fire on a beach to remind Peter that this is a place of putting shame to death. This is a place, as Kurt Thompson would say, a place of retelling your story, retelling the story we believe about ourselves. See, Peter, the story that Peter believed about himself in this moment was that he was a failure and that he was full of shame. That was his story. And it's at this place that Jesus is going to shift, begin to shift the narrative. And he uses powerful symbolism throughout this story 
to communicate to Peter, I noticed it all. I saw everything you did. And I want you to know that I am setting a buffet before you in the presence of not only my enemies, but your enemies. There is no shame, Peter. You need to light a fire, come clean. See, it's at the place of our shame and or our pain that God intends to become the place of our restoration, the place of Peter's restoration. It's not only Peter that gets restored as he goes back to those places, those charcoal fires. There's a prodigal son that comes home to what would be his charcoal fire. It's Paul on on the roadside to Damascus on his way to once again persecute Christians that has a charcoal fire experience and is converted in Acts chapter 9. It's Samson at the last breath of his life comes back to his place and the shame is broken in his life in one last effort to make his life right before God. He lights a fire. A woman caught in the act of adultery receives the mercy of God never to go away in that way again, to have her life restored to her. No shame there. Time and time again, the Bible tell us, tells us in, in very kind of nuanced ways, this one statement, it shows up over and over and over again, and it shows up here in a charcoal fire, go back the way you came and have your life restored. That place of denial, that place of failure, that place of brokenness was not the last piece of the story. I will meet you at that place. See, many times in the process of restoration, it's important that we return to the place of pain. That we go to that place and we receive the grace that only God can afford to us. While the enemy is trying to do warfare against us, we just receive by the side of a charcoal fire God's beautiful love for us. It's interesting, he'll go through the process of, do you love me, Peter, three times. He actually doesn't say Peter. You'll notice he doesn't use the name Peter. Because Jesus makes himself vulnerable even to Peter in this story. He wants Peter to know that I am vulnerable to you. Peter, if you don't want to return to me, that's your choice. He calls him by kind of his official names. Before he got the nickname Peter, the name that they all used was Peter. But it was like Simon, son of John. You'll notice as you read through it, Jesus doesn't refer to him as Peter until Peter begins to make the decision on his own and receive the healing and the restoration that Jesus is offering him. Jesus is essentially saying, I don't want to presume you want to follow me or serve me. He says that to all of us. Jesus is always there camping out by the side of the water with a charcoal fire, but never presumes that any of us will make a decision for him. But he's always waiting, always there, always available. There's the charcoal fire. There's the throwing the nets on the other side of the boat. We remember that story, don't we? Remember the story earlier when it said in a different account, they're out fishing, they throw the net on the other side of the boat. At that point in the story, and this is where things start to shift, at that point, that story, which is earlier in the Bible, a different account of the miraculous catch that they have where they need two boats full, uh, or two boats to handle all the fish. In that account, Peter 
Peter, he, he comes to Jesus and falls on his face and says, please away from me. I am such a sinful man. But in this account, the restoration is beginning to take effect. Because instead of Peter retracting from Jesus, he dives into the water. He, he goes headfirst into the water and swims to be with Jesus, to be connected to Jesus. Psychotherapists use this term. They'll say when we name things, we tame things. And that's what's happening here. Peter is beginning to name the place of shame in his life. He is calling it out. And it is beginning to take shame's power away from him. When we call out our pain and our shame, it gives God the opportunity to move into that place. You remember Jesus in John 14 at one point, he says, the enemy has nothing in me. See, shame in our lives and those places of hidden pain and places where we need to repent, they become those places where the enemy does have something in us. And we get held to that place. But it's in our calling it out, it's in our naming the things that we lack in or that we have failed in or that we've been broken in. It's in saying these are the places perhaps of shame in my life. When I call those out, for instance, maybe as a parent and say, you know, I feel like I failed as a parent or I have failed as a spouse or I have failed as a son or a daughter. I failed in this way or that way. I need to repent of those things. What we do in that moment when we call it out is we break the power that the enemy has been a afforded in our life. And that's what Peter is doing here. He lights a fire. He dives into the water. He is on his way. Jesus says it this way. The enemy has nothing in me. He specifically says the prince of this world is coming and has absolutely nothing in me. The enemy has nothing in you and nothing in me when we call out these places that the enemy's trying to camp out. The betrayal and failure that Peter had lived through had to be devastating. But now Jesus was showing us that at the deepest level, he can restore us. So if you need the mulligan, you follow the leader. It's beautiful, isn't it? The scripture kind of does a 360 in Peter's life. Comes full circle all the way around. He introduces, Jesus introduces himself to Peter by inviting him to follow him. He goes all the way to the end of this scripture and once again says to Peter, follow me. It's the invitation to be fully restored, restoration accomplished. We have to follow the leader in order to receive our restoration and that multiplied opportunity that God's offering us on this day See, you and I, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it talks about, Jesus starts talking about this hard stuff. Starts talking about, you know, they're going to wrap a belt around you and they're going to drag you places when you get older. And, you know, then the scripture tells us that it, it uh, actually the scripture doesn't tell us, a commentator essentially told us that that was to speak about the uh, way that Peter was going to ultimately die. But I would, I would put before you maybe even another thing that's being communicated here. And what's being communicated here is Jesus is saying, you need to follow me. 
You need to follow everything about me. See, because that's what Peter didn't do, right? Peter didn't go where he didn't want to go. Peter didn't do what he didn't want to do. Peter didn't follow Jesus through the pain of the crucifixion and wait around for the resurrection. Peter didn't do that. Jesus is simply saying, look, you follow me in the good, the bad, and the ugly. You follow me. You cannot be close to Jesus. I cannot be close to Jesus if I never follow Jesus where he goes. Peter could not be close to Jesus, could not be fully restored to Jesus until he went where Jesus was inviting him to go. That includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, in, in, in Matthew 25, where it says, Jesus says, you know, uh, come those blessed of my father and inherit the kingdom. And then he describes who those people are. I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me in. I was naked. You gave me clothing. I was sick. You took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. All of those things, right? And he goes on. And then the, the people that are entering into heaven in the account in Matthew 25, they say, well, when did we do that? And he says, when you did it to the least of my brethren, when you followed me into the places that I go and my presence shows up, when you do those things, you're following the leader. Now, why is he naked? Why do they talk about this naked thing? It's curious, isn't it? Well, it's not really as crazy as you think. Uh, the descriptive here probably isn't full naked. It's more like he's probably got a loincloth or something. He's a fisherman. Uh, and they're not fishing with Zebcos. Understand that they're fishing with nets. And at times nets would get stuck on things and they would have to dive into the water, break the net free. So they're not fully clothed while they're fishing. So it's really not that odd. But what is what is beautiful is the fact that Peter, before he jumps in the water, he clothes himself. See, he started as a fisherman of fish. Jesus invited him to be a fisherman of people. Then he's now gone back to being a fisherman of fish because he's naked, right? And then he intentionally puts his clothes back on because it's back to mission. It's back to the plan Jesus has for my life. It's back to the garb that I need while I fish for people. Which is the joy and the privilege of the presence of Jesus. But it's the kind of fishing clothes Jesus wants him wearing. There is a joy and a privilege that comes with Jesus' presence. The scripture says there were 153 fish. There he was, leader of the universe on a beachside. There's 153 fish in the net. And they come in somehow. Do you ever read that and think, what are they, how did, what are they, how did they even know that? It's interesting, if you read the Gospels and you count the amount of moments where Jesus specifically blessed someone or did a miracle in their life, comes out to 153 times specifically. And on that beachside, Jesus begins to recount what they had lived over the last couple of years together, the last few years. He began to remind them of the miracles that they'd experienced. He talked perhaps about the woman at the well or the 10 lepers 
or Zacchaeus or Lazarus raising from the dead or the man that was lowered through the roof by his friends, the centurion's servant, or they probably even chuckled, I would, I would imagine, about the soldier's ear needing to be put back on, blind eyes being opened, children being restored. And Jesus is reminding them of the promise and reminding us of the promise that he is with us. So you follow the leader. Some of you have been around little children and um, isn't it great when you do a project with a child, like you want to wash the dishes or something? This is our, one of our sons, Ian, and his two daughters, Kirsten and Adriana. Uh, and this is what happens when we, as a parent, we invite in our children or children. We want to share a project, like let's wash the car right? Let's cut the grass together. Let's, well, this is a project. They were doing a painting project. I don't even remember at this point who they were going to paint for. There was like a specific project. Let's paint a picture for so-and-so. And it didn't take long before the painting shifted to painting one another because this is what happens, isn't it? But when you're a parent, it really, it really isn't, are the kids good at what they're doing? You don't invite them to the project because they're good at the project, right? You don't do it because you think they can get an expert job done. If you just wanted a painting done or you just wanted the dishes washed or you just wanted the car washed, you wouldn't even invite the kids because you can do it better. You're more of an expert. You can get it done more efficiently. Hey, and also when these kinds of projects go on and there's more than one child around, is there ever bickering that happens? Isn't there? Yeah, bickering seems to happen. And generally when you have to finish what is started, the parent has to do it. And so it is with God. It is God's job to finish this beautiful work we've all been invited into. You have been invited into a project, to a life that you are inadequate to live. But Jesus wants to be present with you like a parent wants to be present with a child. And Jesus sits on beach, on shorelines, restores us, encourages us, tells us to follow him. Because... He wants to have time with us and he wants us to enjoy the beauty and the power and the the goodness that comes with his kingdom work that's going on on the earth. So on this day, as we, why don't we stand? I just want, I just want you to consider if you came in here on this day in any way carrying shame carrying pain, know this, know that Jesus is here to take your shame and your pain. God wants to be with us. God wants to carry that. God wants to lift that burden off of each one of us. And he just wants to be with us. Wants us to have the privilege of doing this journey with them. 
God loves each and every one of us so much, guys. So could you just in some way um, let God know that you would like to receive a blessing today, whether that's opening your hands or putting your hand on your heart, however you'd like to do that, just to say to God, I would like the blessing today, the removal of any shame that I would follow you all the days of my life. Just some way let God know that. And Father, I bless my friends. I bless their road. I bless their journey. I pray that they would feel held by you and cherished by you. That they would realize there is always a fire burning. And that then they would become the kind of people that would light a fire for other people's forgiveness. That we would live in that same way. So bless them this week, God, with the knowledge of your love and with the ability to follow and then give that love. Bless each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a great week.